Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the Royal Academy's Architecture Programme Curator. It's my pleasure to be chairing this evening's discussion about Starchitects. This is the third of a series of debates that we're running in parallel with a book and installation called Mavericks, Breaking the Mould of British Architecture. What, might you ask, makes an architect a maverick? Well, in the, the book and installation, we define them as those architects who defy convention and stand outside the mainstream, singular, visionary, sometimes surprising figures who chart their own, again, sometimes idiosyncratic course. So the installation and book focus on 12 very different mavericks who have played important roles in the history of British architecture from the 16th century right up to the present. They include such names as Robert Smithson, the great Elizabethan architect, John Soane, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, James Sterling, Cedric Price, Fat, and Zaha Hadid. So one of the issues that's recurred over the previous two debates is the connection between the maverick and the so-called architect. And I call it so-called because it's a rather, I think, slightly ugly conjunction of two words into one. And maybe we'll, uh, we'll unpick those a little bit later on. But this connection between the maverick and the architect provides the starting point for this evening's discussion, which examines architecture as a phenomenon, assesses its implications on architectural practice and architectural culture, and looks at how we might move beyond what in slightly grandiose terms described as the age of the architect. So to begin, I thought I might make a few general comments about architects. I was just saying to my fellow panellists, I'll be introducing uh, very shortly, uh, that I couldn't find out exactly when the term was first coined or indeed by who. But Google says it was first used in 1986 and gained increasing currency in the 1990s becoming widely used in the 2000s, though interestingly, its usage has recently begun to decrease, and I, we may well look at some of the reasons for that a little later on. Although a architect is defined straightforwardly by the Oxford English Dictionary as, quote, a famous or high-profile architect, it's a very slippery term, and it's important to consider whether the term arose as a consequence of a new phenomenon in architecture, say, the emergence of a group of globe-trotting superstar architects, each with their own signature style, or whether it was merely a new term applied to an existing set of conditions. So looking back into architectural history, and you just have to go with me on this, and applying the term retroactively, we might see Vitruvius as the first architect. Uh, then we have a bit of a gap. Hardly any medieval architect masons are known to us, so we have to look to the Renaissance for the next group, Alberti, Brunelleschi, Bramante, Michelangelo, and then, of course, Palladio. Can't ignore him. I won't, I won't continue any further. But things get a little bit tricky, however, when we consider architects' posthumous reputations. The work of Borromini or the work of Hawksmoor, for instance, now stands at the very pinnacle of architectural achievement, yet for much of the 18th, 19th centuries, they had to endure being little remembered and their architecture subject to amusement, bafflement, uh, not to mention uh, sometimes vociferous attack. 
We're on firmer ground, though, uh, once we reach the 19th century and, indeed, the 20th century with the professionalisation of architecture and, even more importantly, I think, when we come to talk about Starkitects, the advent of the architectural press. To what extent the Starkitect is the invention of the architectural media at a very particular moment is, I think, one of the questions that we'll be exploring later on. But we should remember that architects have always been great promoters of their work. Benini, for example, was notorious in sidling up to potential patrons. The difference, though, when we come to someone like Le Corbusier is that he was also very media savvy. So while Benini was courting princes and nobles, Le Corbusier was courting the press, controlling photography of his buildings, some might say even designing in such a way that his buildings might photograph well, in black and white, of course. Buildings today that you see on the web that look like they've almost been designed to photograph well, to get that kind of key money shot are, in light of this, nothing new. And just to talk a little bit more about photography and the image, uh, this of course remains the primary means through which architecture is consumed, particularly now the profession is globalised. With web page hits translating into revenue, the importance of photography has never really been higher. With the rise of image-led architecture and design websites, not to mention Instagram, increasingly superseding the old role of the critic. And this, I think, creates a feedback loop between consumption and creation and vice versa. Uh, placing increased emphasis, some could say, on the novelty and ease of consumption of images, not to mention the presence of certain starry names uh, which are guaranteed to get higher and higher numbers of click-throughs. We only need to look at the work of a practice like Big, for example, incredibly media savvy, with their work and their media savvy working in constant dialogue to create buildings that sort of revel in their sort of imagistic qualities. And it's no coincidence that Bjark Ingel's name is now on the Wikipedia page of Starkitects. So amid this sort of seeming media triumph of the Starkitect, the term itself uh, carries negative connotations. The Oxford English Dictionary describes its usage as informal, uh, chiefly derogatory. So even as we participate uh, inadvertently sometimes in a system that's geared, it would seem, towards the promotion of Starkitects through the media, uh, being called a Starkitect is frequently accompanied by an accuser's <coughs> sniggering, if not outright derision. Frank Geary, for example, has emphatically rejected the label. I'm not sure if it was when he stuck up his middle finger at the press, but I suspect others have too. Uh, in 2007, uh, the critic for the New York Times, Nikolai Orosov, explained the Starkitect status for some as this object of ridicule uh, is, is, can be understood in relation to the way the term has become a kind of a shorthand for this kind of globe-trotting prima donna signed up by developers in a cynical and greedy marketing ploy to help get largely oversized developments through planning, with the planners clinging to the idea that famous architects obviously never design bad buildings. It's through this that the architect has become uh, perhaps indelibly associated with the icon in architecture, the building of outlandish form bearing the imprimatur of a famous name that appears to have little concern with its context architectural, historical, or social. And I know the relationship between Starkitect and the iconic will be another point of discussion this evening.
So we may hate the Snarkitect, we may ridicule the very idea of them, but we can't ignore, I would argue, the fact that they exist and the ways they hog the limelight have broad implications and effects. At an abstract level, uh, their dominance can be seen as distorting the picture of architecture as both a discipline and a practice that we might piece together from the media. Going even further and perhaps more speculatively, we might even say that architects warp the way the architectural profession actually views itself, as certain stars suck up media attention with the awards and dominate debate, the risk is of ignoring the really interesting or pioneering work that's actually going on in favour of the media friendly. So, this evening, we hope to shine a light, uh, a searching light, on the consequences and implications of the Starkitect, the cult of the Starkitect, indeed Starkitecture, its relentless focus on individuals in contrast to the collaborative way that buildings are always produced, both within the architectural discipline and in dialogue with a huge array of other ones. The almost total absence of women amongst the ranks of architects, Zaha perhaps being the exception that proves the rule. And how the feedback loop between design and the ways resultant images are consumed is beginning to affect practice. But also, more positively, how we might break that feedback loop and create more equitable and a realistic image of how architecture is actually practiced. So our first speaker this evening is Karen Cook, uh, to my far left, who is founding partner of PLP and is a former partner of KPF. Karen. Perhaps it's human nature to idolize objects. Perhaps star architecture is not an invention of the 1980s. I think it's human nature to want to perpetuate ritual and to seek order and direction from a higher power. I think the buildings can um, sometimes embody this and sometimes people want them to embody this, whether they do or should or not. This is an image from 19th century to celebrate the bicentennial of the cathedral building or the tercentenary of the, of the fire itself. Certainly. Wren had a big impact on uh, the city. You could call him a star architect. I think it's important then to recognize the role of the client in the creation of, of the star architect. And it's also important to recognize the role of, of the media. This image probably all of you would recognize. Um, it certainly um, had political and, and social power at its time. It could be said that if there is a decline in star architecture today, Maybe it, it's a sign that people are not finding fulfillment in the role that they're assigning the image as they would if they were to be a part of a ritual and actually experience the building. I would also like to pose the question, um, is it appropriate to place highly show-off objects as a collection of objects to make an urban environment? I think everybody would probably agree with that. This um, table of contents comes from Intelligent Life. It's a magazine that The uh, Economist puts out um, every two months. And I found it interesting because of the series that Owen has put together. On the um, there's an article under architecture called um, The Twilight of Show-Off Buildings. And I, I found it interesting especially because they've located it under the style heading and not under the culture or places or intelligence heading. 
And I think that says something about architecture and how the public have begun to perceive it. And I think there's a risk that the architect is relegated to stylist and that that implies a, a loss of the master builder and a, and a loss of, imp of, of permanence. Um, that architecture could give to a society and to the occupants who um, use the buildings. This is a quote by David Bowie about his perception of, of success and his definition of success. Um, obviously somebody who is undeniably or was undeniably successful as a rock star and I think many would agree as, was a successful artist as well. And He spoke in an interview on Arte um, television production basically saying that um, success that comes from publicity or success that comes from commercial success is fleeting and that his definition of success is whether his own concept has been realized in the work of, of the actuality of the work and I think to be honest most architects would like to think that that's what they're doing when they're doing a building and um, obviously if an architect is promoted it helps him get more work um, but I think that there's a desire to satisfy the needs of, of the client and of the user. I'd like to wind the clock back. I'm perhaps older than some of you in the audience, and before the age of the internet, I had a university education. Um, and in fact, I couldn't afford to buy magazines either. So the images that I was shown were in my architectural classes um, or from buildings that my, my father had taken me to visit as a child. And um, the, my teachers at Rice University in Houston, Texas, um, two of them were students of, of Bauhaus teachers. And that um, meant that they were very much focused on design process, design as a process, and not um, in terms of creating an object and then making it work for the program. It was very much the other way around. You would start a design process, and after understanding all the programmatic elements, the site, the context, the, the client, you would draw and draw and draw, and then there would be a process at the end of which there would be a result that you couldn't have known would arrive at the beginning. Um, and the, my father was a biologist. I was actually born in Los Angeles, and so one of the iconographic um, buildings of the time was the Salk Institute. This is the image that most of you would recognize if you're aware of this building by, by Louis Kahn. Um, I'm, I've put together an array of images of the plan, which was considered to be very innovative at the time. as a big, long span, very flexible um, laboratory workspaces. And basically, um, the circulation is around the perimeter, and then the, the study areas off of that, with separated by gardens where people were encouraged to meet and collaborate. So he was trying to get the scientist out of the lab um, and to socialize with the other scientists, which actually is, if, if you're looking at what is happening in the workplace at this very moment, that's exactly what we're now trying to do, is get people out of their pens and into the social areas, to, because that's where intelligent people converse and exchange ideas. Um, and Khan actually said at the time that um, he did listen to the scientists, but then he examined what they were doing and, and decided that he knew better than they did how to organize their space. And it wasn't that he was being disrespectful, it's that he observed that the way they worked um, wasn't benefiting, that, uh, sorry, that the, that the surrounding architecture was not benefiting the way that they worked. Um, this is another building. We, we lived in Oregon as well for a time, and Alvar Alto, believe it or not, did a building there. 
Um, it was finished in 1970. It's not very well known, um, but he obviously a star architect. Um, I think just the opposite of a lot of object building creators. He was very much about making the interior for the user, examining the path of the light, um, the scale, the natural materials, um, and human interaction as well. He on, uh, really, the exterior of the building was almost a result of what happened inside, and it, and it was not about the way it looked outside for him. And, and ultimately, I grew up in a house in Maine that was influenced, uh, where the architect was influenced by Alto, very much about the relationship with the exterior. And I would like to point out the hearth, um, the fire, the etymology in French being <coughs> the etymology of, of foyer, of family, um, and basically very primitive meaning. Um, and Alto explaining how to deal with all of these programmatic elements, but then basically absorbing them to the extent that they didn't control you, because ultimately your design process has to be free to, to be able to, to come up with some um, design. Mies, for me, another 20th century icon, arch, uh, iconographic architect. Um, he broke all the rules in New York by setting the building back, which was against city planning and had a big fight to do so, um, which he won and created the public space in the middle of the city, which was much needed. Um, and Le Corbusier, you mentioned, I, I wanted to put him here because um, a, a lot of people can agree or disagree with his premise. I think um, there was both Mies and Le Corbusier, very many very bad copies made of their work internationally. Um, I think at, at the origin, um, very good design, again, thinking of the family. In this case, housing people after the war where there was a huge um, demand f and need for housing a lot of people very quickly. Uh, I think we're facing that situation here in London. Uh, it's not being addressed. Um, I, I guess we're talking about British architecture in this, for, in this form, in, the, in this um, series, but what we're not yet really talking about, and I think it's another topic, is what happens when the very best architecture in the world, which you could argue is done here, some of it, um, is badly copied outside and, and what happens when people are doing star architecture. So life after star architecture, um, <coughs> maybe we're going back to um, Vitruvius and this is actually an edition by Gaugier, um, French um, edition of the principles of architecture. I think the image of the frontispiece is really important. Um, it, it's showing very basic uh, shelter out of natural materials, and there's maybe an idyllic setting of a woman um, explaining to the child. Some like to say it's the, the naive architect, but I think in its very most basic form, it's a woman and a child, and you could say that it's the family. Um, at the same time, there was an, an English edition um, and a frontispiece for the English, very different in my view. Um, it's still a, a shelter, it's a little less primitive. Um, there's the disappearance of the woman and child. I don't know what that says about the attitude at the time <coughs> of the, the role of the woman in the, in the shelter. There's a lot of builders building, and I think that's terrific. It's actually showing that British society, even then, was very focused on building, and I think that's um, one of the great things about being an architect in London today. Um, so this is my last couple of slides here. Um, I, I, I wanted to 
show, this is a slide I sometimes show to architects, sorry, to clients who are not familiar with working in London, um, what the architect needs to do um, to, to do a project here, because in some countries it's much simpler than it is here. Um, so I, I explained to them that they have a project and, and they have themselves as the client, but actually there's a number of other bodies who consider themselves to be the client as well. Um, and the architect gets to be this con um, tissue connecting everyone or trying to lead everyone along. Uh, and I, I think that's really important for clients to understand. Um, and I guess I would also like to point out the, the skill and the success of the client in shepherding that process as well has, has a fundamental outcome of the success of the project. Um, and I, I wanted to show this slide, which I um, made for tonight, because I th the realization of the project then also depends very much on the quality of the builder, the quality of the engineers, um, and, and, and the, the client too. And lastly, um, innovation, we will probably speak more about that together. Um, architects themselves are, are probably trying to apply the innovation of engineers and scientists, um, where architects themselves can be innovative is in addressing the social situation of society. Um, and I, I guess um, that brings in a number of other people. If we're looking at what's happening in society now, post-star architecture, and, and the, the way we're living and the way we're working, we're demanding a lot more out of our buildings, and, and it's probably time to consider if the buildings themselves need to be different. And that means other types of consultants coming into the project and advising on the project. Thank you very That's much. It. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Karen's already put the knife into the age of star architects. It's already over. Uh, we can all go home. Uh, but we won't uh, because our next uh, speaker is Hannah Loftus, who is co-founder of HAT Projects. Hannah. Well, I guess I'm pretty much well set up for disagreeing with uh, Karen's premise about the death of star architecture. I suppose I'm really interested in this junction between the star architect as an individual and star architecture or if you like the kind of image culture that is now so hugely prevalent across Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, you know this incredible melange of imagery that we now have out here and how powerful that is really in terms of a cultural presence or a cultural force today more widely. And I suppose I'm just going to make a few observations. They don't really add up to a theory, but I'm just going to try them out on you guys and see what your response is. Firstly, I suppose I'm interested about whether this image culture is actually maybe killing the star architect as an individual, or certainly as this little elite club that Owen referred to, mostly male, mostly now in their 70s or 80s. Um, and maybe it is prioritizing star architecture so the buildings themselves or the images of the buildings themselves that are so grabbing, that are so kind of media friendly over the names of the people who produce them. And I guess I've got a couple of reasons why I think that might be happening. Firstly, these platforms are equally available to anybody, whether you're a Zaha or whether you're a recent graduate who hasn't even built anything, maybe just a tiny kind of cabin in your parents' backyard. You know, that tiny cabin can get pinned, retweeted, 
reposted and, and reach an audience of billions across the planet now. This is something that really wasn't available to that original Starkitect generation unless you had the money and the, the, the resources for the kind of PRs that would go to the magazines that Karen couldn't afford to buy, that were really the only way that were people were consuming these things at the time. But now, you know, media, as Owen said, the critics aren't really there. The critics aren't really doing a filtering job. The public is doing this incredible job of just collating stuff from everywhere. And what's happening is those images are getting divorced from the person. It's more the tastemaker, the curator of that Instagram feed, the person who puts together that Pinterest board, the designs, the Kanye West, if he, you know, he talks about his architect for his apartment and it just kind of spreads all over the world. You might not have even heard of them before that moment. But is it really him or is it the architect? And I suppose I'm just interested in that. And I think the second thing is this question of scale, the fact that that tiny cabin in your parents' backyard has equal weight on the internet to an opera house in Guangzhou or, you know, some huge new art museum in the United States. And what does that really mean for star architecture or star architects? Are we just getting that same thing that the pop culture has within music where you can put a record out from your bedroom? It's so easy now to become that star. Actually, the Star Architect Club is just hugely expanding, in my view, to include all sorts of other people who will now get their own niche following, who will be hot this minute, who will not be hot the next minute. The third point I'm just going to make really briefly is I think that image culture now is also collapsing, not only, if you like, status, and not only scale, but also time. And this idea of what is a trend now. We used to have this idea that there were styles, and one sort of more or less preceded the next, and then there'd be the next sort of rebellious group that would come along, and they'd say, that one's rubbish, and we're kind of doing the next one. I know this is a very simplistic version of life. But... What's interesting now is how projects that may be 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years old suddenly re-emerge within the kind of image culture. They kind of pop out almost out of nowhere and suddenly get this traction. So whether it's you know, a house that might be built by the Smithsons and was suddenly restored by you know, another architect just recently, and you know, how that plays into the house that was built just yesterday from scratch by somebody... There's this sort of interesting collapsing of time and trend into maybe less a linear sequence, in my view, and maybe more a set of parallel strands that are just kind of carrying people in their own niche interests. You tend to find yourself being suggested more and more things along that route that the internet almost knows you're going to like. It's maybe less broadening and more kind of flattening into these little trends. So I think that maybe we're entering an age of more star architecture, maybe less star architects, but the image culture is definitely dominant. And I suppose the big question is, what does this do for the commissioning of buildings by clients? Because none of this really matters if it doesn't change the way that people are asking us all to kind of build stuff. And I suppose I just think that there's an interesting question about performance of buildings relative to their image value. Because ultimately, clients <coughs> do value performance. But we haven't found a sexy way of talking about performance in the same way as we can talk about image now. There isn't the kind of mood board moment for, you know, is your building cost-effective per metre squared? Or how is it really going to be maintained over the long run? Or, you know, how much is your utility bill going to be? Yet we found that in other design disciplines. We found it for cars. We found it, you know, for our phones. We're really interested in kind of performance and tech in that way. And I suppose I think there's a kind of challenge to that image culture and maybe to that star architecture culture, which is saying, can we recast some of the critique of architecture around architecture as a holistic product and not just as an image. Thank you very much. Uh, 
And now we have Catherine Peace, who is co-founder of VPPR. Thank you. Um, there's no doubt that we all admire some great buildings uh, that are built by architects who may or may not be called starchitects. Uh, what what um, troubles me is that I think the, the term starchitect is incredibly distorting and damaging to the profession. I would like to touch on three points uh, on this subject. The first is um, about collaboration. Um, when it comes to the process of design, the whole notion of the architect is a myth. Um, architecture looks to find design solutions for social, economic and environmental problems. Um, these are only a, a few of them. Uh, the idea that one person, the architect, can resolve all these complex uh, questions is a real distortion to the profession and damaging to the profession as a whole. Architecture and the process of design is about collaboration and complex teamwork. Um, going back to the image, as, as, um, as mentioned by Karen and Hannah, um, the, the image reduces the, uh, the architecture to a single aesthetic image when the reality is that it's a complex machine and a complex machine needs many to, 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 to create and build it. Um, and as, as was mentioned before, photographs fail to convey the programmatic uh, successes or failures um, of the building as an inhabited living organism. Collaboration is something we care deeply as a practice. Um, at VPPR Architects, there were three founders. We felt that as th uh, three of us could bring far more to architecture and create new ideas, we could create new ideas and solutions by combining our experiences. Uh, we were three women setting up in our mid-twenties. We all learned from each other and supported each other. Um, this would have been much tougher being alone. In addition, it's about our, our team of VPPR architects, it's about the engineer, the, the contractor, the collab every, collaborators, fellow designers, architectural precedents, uh, contemporary precedents, are all influence and are really critical to the outcome of what we design. And above all, again mentioned um, by Karen, um, is the client, an, an open-minded, um, ambitious, um, client who can lead a conversation and push, allow architects to push ideas further will result in, in great buildings. In a way, I think we should have more, there should be a term for starky clients over the starkies. <laughs> architecture needs to be a collaboration and architecture is a conversation and, and not a monologue. Um, my second point is about uh, young, young emerging practices and small practices. Um, it's if architecture as a profession wants to bring solutions to social problems, then it's a question for every architect and not just the big names and the big firms. Innovation in design very often comes from, from young practices and emerging talents. Um, and, if we, and if we look at this city and all the social problems that need to be resolved, uh, in particular the housing crisis, uh, diversifying this pool of architects will, will create many solutions and create a more diverse city. The public procurement process is incredibly tough for young and emerging firms um, and public tenders require uh, very complex, um, very complex 
form form filling um, that and and it's this chicken and egg situation where if you haven't built a certain type of building or haven't built a certain scale of building then it's impossible to win that type or that scale of building but in actual fact um, I strongly believe that the, the architecture is about a process and um, that process can be translated uh, across many scales and across many types of buildings. Um, it's, clients should really be encouraged to work with a more diverse pool of architects and, and this will result in more diverse, diverse architecture. Um, awards can help smaller firms, um, but in our experience there are still so many hurdles in, in gaining the bigger projects and, and the, um, competing against the bigger names. Um, and in order to, to achieve this diversity, we really need to open up that, that pool of, of architects. Um, my third point, perhaps the elephant in the room, uh, women and um, gender, gender equality. Um, the lack of women in the profession is a huge loss uh, to architecture. There's only 20, just over 20% of architects who are women in the profession, and at senior levels, um, 12 to 14%. This might, might vary a bit. Uh, and and this thinking about this, how how few women in the profession contribute a huge amount to architecture. Uh, this is this is a huge loss, and so much could be gained if there were more women in the practice. Um, in our practice, where twelve, where nine people, and um, the nine of us are all women, and it's not a conscious decision. It's just that we receive a huge, uh, huge amount of great CVs from women. From a personal perspective, I decided I wanted to be an architect when I was eight. I had no idea what gender equality was about until quite a few years later, or probably until I became an architect. Um, and I was lucky enough to have some great female mentors and um, teachers uh, at starting up my career. And at my part one, I had um, a great female, female boss, Juliette Diara, who was who's incredibly inspiring um, architect and the co-founder of Dive Architects. Uh, as my part two, I had uh, Lindy Roy in New York as a boss. And for my part, uh, or, or when I set up VPP Architects, which actually coincided with my part three, because none of us had our part three when we first set up, we had Jo Van Hennigan as a mentor. She was incredibly inspiring to us as a practice. She allowed us to share desk space within her office and acted as a mentor to us. It's wonderful that she has gained recognition and she received an OBE earlier this year. And I wish there were more female mentors and women like her for, for emerging young women. It's a huge question because it's not something that architecture can resolve on its own. It's, it's, it's a much bigger political question um, surrounding gender equality as a whole in Britain. And you look at countries where there is greater gender equality, such as uh, Norway and Sweden, that has a 50-50% divide. And I just I, I, I think that if we could achieve those numbers, we would be gaining technically 60% more women in the profession, and that represents 60% more talent in, in the profession. So we need more women uh, and more female mentors. Just to wrap up, I don't think it's about the male architect. It's about, um, it's about collaboration, more diversity um, in terms of architects 
uh, working on projects and it's about more women. Thank you very much, Catherine. And finally, we have Vicky Richardson, who is still, just for a few weeks, Director of Architecture, Design, Fashion at the British Council. She's the Commissioner of the British Pavilion, the Venice Biennale, that opens at the end of May. She's just finished a Master's in Early Modern History. So, Vicky. I think there is an elephant in the room, although I'm not sure I like being described as it, um, or any of us would. But I think the, the elephant in the room is... is is that this is International Women's Day, I think, and we are an all-women panel, apart from Owen, which is pretty unusual. And I think, obviously, Owen's trying to make a statement here of some sort in organising this event in, in such a way that you've also got the whole, yeah, the whole question that we're meant to be discussing of star architecture and icons and, and mavericks and so on. Um, so how do we unravel all of this um, complex situation it seems as if this discussion could potentially cover everything that um, that we know and think about architecture um, I think just to stick first of all with with the um, the star architecture part of the discussion before addressing the elephant bit um, I think as people some people have said the the term star architecture star architect is itself part of a critique uh, rather than a positive celebration of something. And I think it has to be seen in that kind of context. Um, in fact, nobody I know would ever use the term architect as a positive description um, of a state of play. And uh, I think that no coincidence that this term emerges in the 80s um, as at the beginning, really, of, of a sort of, what I would say, is a sort of era of a crisis of confidence within architecture, the 1980s, um, the decade, the middle of the 80s, uh, when, uh, when Prince Charles seemed to express the, the feeling of a nation when he um, condemned architects um, and in particular the, uh, the, the National Gallery competition described as the, a carbuncle on the face of an old friend and, um, and laid into the architecture profession at its most important annual dinner. Um, and in the process tried to bring down several um, firms of architecture. And I think this, this really seemed to express a, a sort of crisis of self-belief um, after, after the post-war era of modernism and um, belief in that architecture could express a new type of society. Uh, this, this kind of, the, the beginning of, of this era was really represented a retreat um, from that and star architect, the term star architect, I think, emerged very much in that context. Um, but I think that more generally, what we're talking about is the relationship between the individual and, and the collective, the relationship between um, an individual creative um, and the role that 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 person plays in in a creative process and the, and collaboration. Um, and it's interesting how collaboration now has become one of those words, a bit like sustainability, um, where it's, it's self-evidently a good thing. I mean, who on earth would stand up and say they were against collaboration? Um, who, who would, just as nobody would stand up and argue for an unsustainable uh, way of building or, or, or designing? I mean, collaboration is, is um, 
uh, it's become one of those kind of uh, meaningless buzzwords, in, in, in my opinion. And interestingly, I think that at times in history where you've had the strongest individuals or those individuals who are deemed to have changed architecture most, it's also the periods where you've had the strongest form of a sense of solidarity and collective in, in society. So if you think of Brunelleschi, I mean Brunelleschi, a creative genius, hero of, of the Renaissance, um, definitely a star architect. Um, but, you know, he, he was involved in one of the largest collaborative processes. Building Florence Cathedral took hundreds of years, and his work came on the, on the back of other, other architects and stonemasons and engineers and so on. Who, uh, but he was the one who, who solved the problem that no one else could solve and discovered a means to build the dome. But it didn't end there. His, what, he d died before the cathedral was finished and his work had to be finished for him. I mean, it was a vast collaborative effort. Um, but he did play a decisive role and he, and he was particularly um, forceful and he, he imposed his will on that situation and came up with an incredibly genius solution. So what, do there, what is this relationship between the individual and and the, 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 the collective, I think that's the key thing. And I think, um, sadly, the, the kind of, the debate about star architecture is already decided. It's one of those words that's, as, as you said, Owen, it's become a shorthand for saying exactly what you think, uh, stating your position without having to say anything at all. Just as having an all-female panel or saying it's International Women's Day, already, the debate's already had. We don't need to even talk about it. We're all here um, celebrating um, uh, a position without having to debate it. Actually, I think there's a lot more to, to say on this, and I think that, um, if, if anything, we need to actually defend the values of, of star architecture, bizarrely enough, because I think that we live in an era where um, the individual, where this, our sense of what it means to be an individual is just as weak as our sense of what it what it means to be a collective. Um, strong individuals, that sense of kind of being that you can make a difference, that you can be an agent, you can do anything, anything's possible, and you can make it happen. That that sense in society as a whole is extremely weak at the moment, and I'd argue that um, far from architects being needing to be weaker in their role as architects, we actually need to strengthen the position of architects in relation to um, clients. Certainly, if you look at London at the moment, um, the way that developers are just um, pushing everybody around and have local authorities on their knees and can really set the terms of, of development. If the, if the voice of the architect was stronger and if architects themselves were stronger in asking questions and um, questioning the brief and pushing the client to do more and better, then I think that, that we'd, we'd be in a better situation. So it's in nobody's interest for us to all behave as um, weak-willed individuals who are not prepared to assert our will um, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, and I think that some of the things that you, in your blurb for the event, Owen, that you said were the hallmarks of the star architect, um, disregard for social conventions, isolation, the individual overcoming adversity, surely these, some of these things are actually hugely important. The, your, one's ability to step back from the everyday and be objective um, and then uh, have the bravery to disregard convention and to go against the grain and to stand up for what you believe in. I mean, these are all really positive things. And I think that um, 
architects architects are often singled out amongst creatives because building because buildings are the most complex creative projects um, and so the uh, the importance of asserting one's will on 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 a situation um, and following through the creative idea to its very conclusion um, and protecting the details uh, you have to be you have to be even even stronger in that and therefore I think um, architects are often singled out as the most egotistical and um, self-centered of creative individuals although this is a debate I think you could have about um, many other areas of uh, in terms of art and and um, create uh, creative disciplines so I think this is a it's a complex situation, but I think it has a lot to do with our sense of the individual versus the the, the collective, and that's um, part of a, a broader culture of conformity and and aversion to risk um, in society at the moment. Just to briefly, I think we should talk about the um, the women thing, the elephant in the room, maybe more in in the debate because I do think um, this is sort of interesting convergence of of different issues here but I would say that I think there's no it's no accident that the critique of star architecture combines with a sort of campaigning or celebration of women's role in in um, architecture it's not a coincidence because in fact some of the values that are being held up now as the values we should um, strive for in architecture collaboration um, you know diversity um, uh, sort of uh, thinking about the user. Of course, these are none of these things you would want to disagree with, but they are seen as feminine approaches to architecture and and, um, and and to anything for that matter. And I think that in general, it's feminine values that are celebrated these days, um, which has nothing to do with the position of women, actually, because I think that women can be just as so-called, you know, masculine in their approach, just as assertive. And in fact, history has shown that they've often had to be more assertive and um, give just as much leadership as, as men in, in the sort of situation that they found themselves in. I mean, I, my personal view is that the feminization of architecture and society is bad for women and it's bad for architecture. We're reducing the debate about architecture to one that seems beyond our control, you know, these things are, are out with our power to, to shape if, if we're deciding that um, one's gender de determines uh, one's approach to architecture. Um, I think it's bad for women because we're not actually discussing what are the real barriers to women entering the profession. And um, you mentioned Scandinavia where there's a 50-50 split. Well, you know, look at their childcare. It's not, it's not a coincidence. Let's have free 24-hour childcare. That was always the, the, the demand of... Um, feminists in the 60s and I don't think that that uh, I, I think that you know it's very simple if you want to if you want um, women to participate equally um, or if you want uh, stay-at-home dads to participate equally um, we need we need proper childcare, and it's 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 quite simple um, but it, I don't think it's to do with changing a fundamental approach to architecture because that would lead us just to a view that would say that there are actual biological differences between men and women and the way that we design. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk